This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Associate editor Griffin Olenek is here today to talk to Father Jim Martin, who has become the face of LGBTQ ministry in American Catholicism, and who now is also the subject of a new documentary called Building a Bridge. Also here is the maker of that documentary, Evan Muscagny. Their conversation is coming up right now on the Commonweal podcast. Evan and Jim, thanks so much for being here on the Commonweal podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. So, Jim, I promise we'll get to you in a minute. But first, Evan, I, I want to ask, how do you and Shannon, uh, your co-director on this project, know each other? And what led to the idea of co-directing a film about Jim and his LGBTQ ministry? Yeah, so Shannon, Nick, and I are the co-founders of Clear Piano Productions. We were the three producers of this film. And uh, we actually all met back in college and had a shared passion for social justice. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years after college that we worked on our first documentary film together, which was on environmental justice. And Building a Bridge was the second feature we've all worked on together. And the origins of that sort of came about because I was raised in a very Catholic community in Kentucky. And I joked that I didn't even really know there were other religions growing up. That's how Catholic Louisville was and, and my world was. And when I got to college, like a lot of young people trying to figure things out, I stopped going to church, left the church, started exploring other religions and just kind of became cynical about everything. And it, it was always my mom, who's a very devout Catholic, who was always sending me stuff saying, hey, there's good progressive voices in the church. There's people who believe in the same things you believe in. And uh, uh, when I moved to New York City, he kept sending me Instagram posts from this cool priest that she follows. And it happened to be Jim. And I just said, all right, I'm just going to go to one of his talks. And I did and was really blown away by what I heard and just felt so different and refreshing compared to what I had heard growing up. And Shannon, who co-directed the film with me, so we actually all went to college in, in Orlando and she used to go to Pulse nightclub when she um, was in college. And, and she had a friend who was killed at Pulse nightclub and she had been wanting to tell his story. And once Jim's video and book came out after the Pulse nightclub shooting, we thought this was a way to tell both of those stories in, in a way that you can see in the film. We're very happy with the way we were able to bring this together. So Jim, you've written about a variety of different ministries that you've participated in over the years. And I'm thinking of your work uh, with retreats and pilgrimages and spiritual direction, but also with refugees in Africa, playwrights and actors in New York City, and of course, your journalism at America. Your LGBTQ ministry feels both like a culmination of this work as well as a new departure. Tell us about how this ministry came about initially and how it's grown in the past several years. Well, that's a great insight. It is a culmination and a little bit of a departure. I had, as you said, throughout Jesuit formation, really worked with a lot of groups that were marginalized or excluded, probably most uh, vividly East African refugees. And I knew LGBTQ people, obviously, um, as a New Yorker and as a priest, the people in my sort of social circle and people in the parish and directees and things like that. But it really wasn't until Pulse Nightclub that I felt um, called to do it a little more formally. And the kind of inflection point was after Pulse, which, of course, was horrific, largest mass shooting in U.S. history up to that point, 49 people. I, I saw that the bishop's response was really pretty paltry. And even those few bishops that of the, of the few bishops that said something in that group, there are only a few that even used the word gay or LGBT and talked about standing with them. And I remember thinking, even in death, these people are invisible to the church. And so I, I did this Facebook video, which went viral, went viral before COVID used to be a good thing. And that led to a talk at New Ways Ministry, 
which led to a book and that led to this ministry. And I, I didn't think the book was going to be much more than just a kind of putting between two covers, the talk I gave in new ways and a couple of gospel meditations, but it turned out to be the start of this ministry, which I feel like the Holy Spirit led me into be just because it just keeps going. And now most recently, this is not an ad, but we just started a new website called Outreach. It just keeps going. So we're just kind of seeing where the Spirit leads it. But yeah, it was really Pulse that started this, I think, in a more public way. And I felt this connection with Shannon and Evan and Christine, who's in the film, the mother of one of the victims, because of that. So there's a, there's a kind of connection there, thanks to the tragedy. Evan, so there's a beautiful visual metaphor that you and Shannon employ throughout the film, which is a shots of Jim tending his garden on the roof of the Jesuit residence in Midtown Manhattan. We see flowers, we see him watering and pruning amidst the skyscrapers. And can you tell us about how you arrived at that metaphor and tell us about the significance of how you begin in early spring? Mm. It's funny because originally it's like we were thinking about ways we can film Jim not in his collar, right? People want to see what, you know, they've seen him at the podiums talking about LGBTQ stuff, about everything. But what is his daily life like? And, and so that's actually how we started film in the gardening. I think Jim at first was like, why are you filming me gardening up here? But of course we, we did it over the course of the, the whole film. And it wasn't until we sat down and did an interview with Brian Massingale and he started talking about what he calls early spring where the Catholic church was. And it was just like, you know, one of those moments you love as a documentary filmmaker where you're like, oh, this is just too perfect. And then of course, as we continued to film it, it, it felt so true, right? Right. Because we we saw the hope, the signs of hope, and but we also saw the messiness through Jim's critics and all of the people that were saying horrible things and nasty things and spamming his social media. So, yeah, it just felt too good to, to not open the film with that. Yeah, and Jim, could you say a bit about what that metaphor means to you of early spring and in the context of your LGBTQ ministry? Well, sure. And funny enough, Evan may not uh, remember this, but he wanted to film me in my Jesuit community. And I said, you are not coming into my Jesuit community and filming us eating and having dinner and it would just be so embarrassing. And so I said, but you can film, you can film me on the rooftop. And so that, that worked out. I think it's a beautiful metaphor. When Brian says that, I've watched the film obviously a couple of times. When Brian says that, Brian Massingale, the Fordham uh, theology professor, it just, it is a beautiful metaphor. And I do think it frames the film very well. And I think it's, a, it's kind of a nice through line for the viewer. And it's true too. I mean, it is messy right now. And there are a kind of late frosts. You think you're moving ahead and suddenly things freeze. And there's even that line at the beginning of the film where I say that to one of the, the people that, at the garden stand at Lincoln Center. And I said, I hope it doesn't freeze. And he said, oh, no, it won't freeze. But it, yeah, it's a perfect, it's a perfect metaphor. And, uh, and it's also very beautiful. It's, it's beautiful to see the flowers on film too. Much better than just seeing me, as Evan said, at a podium <laughs> all the right. time. So I think it's a really lovely metaphor for the film. And a number of reviewers have commented on it. So it's obviously effective. Jim, another one of the strengths of this film is the way that it incorporates criticism of you and your work, and not just from traditionalist Catholics, which we can get to in a minute, but from even from some LGBTQ Catholics and their families. Some feel that your advocacy doesn't go far enough, especially in terms of pushing for a change in church teaching on homosexuality. How do you answer some of those tough questions when they come up? Oh, sure. And a lot of people ask that. I basically say, look, I'm a Jesuit priest. I'm operating within the boundaries of 
the Jesuits and the church. There are limits to what I can say, and I'm not challenging any church teaching. But I think at the beginning, there was some pushback, and we, they, we talk about that in the film, and I had to be open to that. I think what's happened, though, over the past couple of years is that I think the LGBTQ community, especially the LGBTQ Catholic community, have come to uh, understand what I'm doing, right? Within these boundaries, here's where we can push. And there's a lot of places we can push, and there's a lot of things we can do within those boundaries. Now, there are others in the community, like Brian Massengale, who openly challenge church teaching. So we do see ways in which, in which you do push, in which you yourself are pushed, and, and you accept that all very graciously. I'm thinking of one very touching moment at the end of the film where you don't receive permission to march in the Pride Parade but you do show up to St. Francis of Assisi in Midtown to do a mass wearing rainbow socks. So could you just talk about the ways in which you push and how you view that? Sure. Well, funny story. So I take a vow of obedience in addition to poverty and chastity. And so anything that I'm, I'm going to do that seems controversial, I asked the provincial and I was going to march. And he said no, which I was fine with that he's the provincial. And then someone said at St. Francis of Assisi, would you like to do this mass? Now I said, <laughs> without knowing, oh sure, that's a nice thing, the day before Pride. I didn't realize it was the official pre-Pride mass. <laughs> and I get there and it's a big deal. And I had formulated my homily to reflect some of these things, but I went there thinking that this will be a nice thing to do. It's a mass and everything. And that to me, interiorly, that also didn't seem as controversial. But I'm very careful about anything I do or anything I say, getting approval. And one of the reasons is some people don't quite get this. One of the reasons is that it's because it reflects on the, the Jesuits as well. So if I said something untoward or really uh, provocative, it would make other Jesuits get into trouble, right? So it's, it sounds crazy, but if I say something, not because I'm the sort of spokesperson for the Jesuits, but if I said something really provocative, and there was some sort of open discussion between, say, a, a high school and a college and a bishop, right, about, say, LGBT stuff or GSAs, that would make it harder for them. And so I have to recognize that. So that's why I, I want to color within the lines, but also I, I really do want to ask permission. So I'm doing all this from within the church. That's how I see it. And according to my vow of obedience. And there's a real, paradoxically, a, a kind of interior freedom that I hear you identifying. Could you speak a bit about that? How have you arrived at such deep interior freedom with respect to your LGBTQ ministry? Well, uh, there's a, it's a, that's a long answer, but uh, basically I had an experience in prayer on retreat where I was imagining myself with uh, Jesus at the rejection at Nazareth where he's rejected. And I asked him, how are you able to do this? And the answer I heard in prayer, not hearing voices, was um, Jesus saying, must everyone like you? So there's a freedom from the need to be liked and loved and approved of by everybody. But also I know that I'm doing this within the context of being a Jesuit. And I wouldn't be doing this if I weren't a Jesuit. And so it makes sense that I would ask permission and get, it, get approval. But also I think it strengthens the voice. Because if you think about it from a practical point of view, if someone says, oh, this is terrible, I'm going to contact his provincial or I'm, I'm going to contact his ordinary, Car Cardinal Dolan, they will say, we know that he's already told us that. And so, for example, an easy example is this website. So this website, I didn't just throw it up. I told my provincial, I told the people in Rome, they all know, my editor knows, my superior knows in my house. So that just, I think, makes it easier to me, for me to move ahead. Now, I may have to trim my sails a bit. They might say, you know, well, you might not want to do that part of the website. And I have to be open to that. But that's part of my life as a Jesuit, which is how I do everything. Mm -hmm. 
Evan, you include in Building a Bridge a sort of parallel narrative of one of Jim's fiercest detractors. I'm thinking of Michael Voris of Church Militant. You present him as a sincere, if perhaps misguided, foil for Jim, but he's not quite a villain either. Why did you think it was important to humanize Voris, even as we say him saying some of the most hateful things you could say about Jim, his ministry, and about LGBTQ people? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think as a documentary filmmaker, you just try to follow the story, right? And we saw in real time the effects that Boris and Church Militant and other groups were having on getting Jim's talks canceled and spamming his social media. And these are real things that were happening that were affecting his ministry. And that's what we were doing a documentary on. So, of course, we thought it was important to include that. And yeah, I mean... Michael Morris is a complicated and complex person like everyone. And I think it was important to give him the opportunity to express himself. He was very open and honest with us. And we wanted to to be able to include that in the film. And then also we did the same thing with Jim where we asked him how he deals with this. And, and he had a response to a response to, to, to what he thinks and how he handles Michael Boris and Church Militant, the hate. And, and actually, I think we included it in one of the gardening scenes on, <laughs> on the rooftop. So, yeah, could, Jim, could you say a few words about that? Because there's a really beautiful moment in the film where I think it happens in maybe in the sacristy somewhere. You're vesting for mass and you kind of comment on, on Michael Voris and you say something very, really charitable. And could you talk about that? Yeah, I think I'm on the roof and they asked me if I pray for him. And I do pray for him, and I pray that his heart might be softened uh, towards LGBT people and also towards himself, because a lot of the most vituperative critics, not all of them, but ex-gays, former gays, and that's how he, that's how he categorizes himself, I, I suppose, a sort of a converted gay. And I think that in that community of ex-gays, there are a lot of people with a lot of self-hatred. And it just, it, it, to me, that's how it seems, that he's dealing with a lot of self-hatred. And so I pray for him for a kind of a softening towards himself and towards the LGBT people who he seems to just despise, even under, under the guise of loving them. Griffin's conversation with Evan and Jim will continue in a moment. Is the Spirit leading you to discover your unique mission in the world? At the Franciscan School of Theology at the University of San Diego, continue to deepen your faith journey and discover your unique role in caring for our world and the Catholic Church with rigorous master's programs led by world-class scholars. FST's courses and lectures dive deep into the heart of Franciscan spirituality, theology, and social thought, integrating the Catholic faith and the Franciscan vision of civic life and church leadership. The Franciscan School of Theology offers three on-campus degrees, the Master of Theological Studies, the Master of Divinity, and Master of Arts, and an online degree, the Master of Theological Studies, with a specialization in Franciscan theology. Learn to put theology to work in the world at FST. Find true and perfect joy. Visit fst.edu for more information and to start your application today. So, Jim, while building a bridge shows many very poignant moments, it also reveals the limits of your ministry. Despite your loving message, a few subjects, some of whom you've known for many years, still report feeling alienated and even excluded from the church. And here I'm thinking of Marcos, a young man who talks about having to check his rainbow flag at the door of the church. What keeps you going even when your work seems to fall short? 
Well, knowing that I'm just planting seeds. So Marcos <laughs> and Yvonne, that, yeah, there's another metaphor. I didn't mean that's more of a Romero <laughs> right. quote, but there you go. Right. It's like extending the, end, the, the endless metaphor. You know, knowing that you are planting seeds and as Romero, the Romero prayer written by Bishop Kennant, we plant the seeds that other people will harvest. And that's okay. You don't have to see the results of your work. Uh, but there are other places where I do see results, right? right? Where I do see things actually changing and LGBTQ outreach programs starting at parishes and people feeling more welcome. And yeah, so we'll see what happens with Marcos. I still hold out. (laughs) (laughs) And we see some of those changes happening in the film, right? We see out at St. Paul's ministry that you participate in. Could you talk about some of those other broader institutional changes that you're seeing in the church? I think one of the most surprising things uh, for me was when the book came out in 2017, I was attacked for using the word using the term LGBT. I mean, I was attacked for that. In 2018, I was invited, this is in the film, the filmmakers accompany me to Dublin, where I speak at the Vatican's World Meeting Families. The Vatican chose the title for that talk, which was Showing Respect and Welcome to LGBT People and Their Families in Our Parishes. Kind of a long topic. But they use the term LGBT. Just a a couple weeks ago, the Synod came out with a little newsletter, Synod of Bishops, talking about reaching out to LGBT people. And then in an interview that was just published uh, with our new little website, Outreach, um, with Pope Francis, I wrote to him and I said in Spanish, here are three questions about LGBT people. And he didn't bat an eye. He didn't say, oh, I, I can't use that term. He just responded. So that's a small thing, but it's, it's kind of a big thing. And I think it shows the kind of acceptance and kind of mainstreaming of that term, which also means that community. So I think mm-hmm. that's enough. In addition to all the groups that are starting, there's a kind of, I think, a sign of mm-hmm. where we're moving. I want to ask you about Pope Francis and, and your relationship with the Pope. And Evan, too, you, you frame the film, in addition to framing it with the gardening metaphor, you also frame it with Pope Francis, both uh, his initial comments in 2013 aboard the papal flight in the famous comment, who am I to judge, which seemed to usher in a new era of tolerance and respect in the Catholic Church from the hierarchy towards LGBTQ people. But you end it, too, with Jim's meeting in the Vatican with the Pope, and and you just show the photograph, and then we hear Jim's comments about that meeting. So, Jim, could you talk about that initial meeting, what led to it, and then also tell us about your ongoing correspondence with Pope Francis that you just alluded to? Yeah, sure. I was over there for a meeting of the Dicastery for Communication, of which I'm a consultor, which is a very low-level post. And uh, someone said, would you like to meet the Pope? And I said, yes, as soon as, as, mu- as long as he'd like to meet me, and I'll skip all the logistics, but it was uh, one of the high points of my life, frankly. Mm. And uh, before I'd say last summer, I wasn't really able to talk a lot about the details, but he wrote me a letter, which I was allowed to publish, where he said, I want you to continue this ministry, which was the main thrust of the uh, the talk. And I, I just, I just, it, it was a huge boost. And they put out a photo of that meeting. They put it on his public schedule. It wasn't some secret meeting. And that was the Vatican's way of signaling his desire to be open to this and and to meet with me. So it was a huge consolation. And it was also a lot of fun. He was, he's very funny and he's very upbeat. And one of the things that I don't, I think I say in the film is that I was not nervous at all. And I felt like I was speaking to a brother Jesuit. And I also knew that I wasn't there to kind of get something from him, right? I wasn't there to say, oh, I want you to sign on the dotted line. I just had some stories that I wanted to share with them. And so, so I was pretty relaxed, but it was just a great moment. And I just say, for me, seeing the footage, which they filmed, I think a day or two after I saw him, is really special because it kind of um, memorializes for me that just amazing encounter that I had with him. 
One of the most surprising things I thought was that he encourages LGBTQ Catholics to read yeah. the Acts of the Apostles. Could you say a bit about that, what you think he might yeah. need or, or how you understand that? Yeah, very mysterious. So I asked him three questions. What would he want LGBT people to know most about God, about the church? And then what do you say to someone who's feel, felt rejected? I thought the second thing he would say about the church is just something more about the church per se. Oh, the church is struggling. The church is weak. The church no, he said, read Acts of the Apostles. <laughs> now, it's interesting because that's where we are in the liturgical year, so that may have been on his mind. But I think in the Acts of the Apostles, I mean, one thing you see is you see a church that becomes more and more open, right? So initially closed off to the Gentiles because of circumcision and other things, and this is how I read it, and then just expands. And also a church that struggles and that is arguing and trying to figure things out. So he says in, in the short answer, which I thought was very profound, it's a living church. So it's not some sort of static church that never moves or never develops or never grows. I thought it was a brilliant metaphor, really surprising. When I read it, he wrote to me, he wrote a handwritten note. I had to read that. I was like, what, what is he talking about? Then I realized, I think what he was alluding to. But I found in those just three, three or four sentences some really profound answers. And it was really moving to me that he, would, this, he knew when I said in the letter, I said, this is for an interview. So I, it was clear, like, this is going to be published. And he knew who he was addressing. So I'm hoping at some point there'll be a lot of LGBT people that pick up Acts of the Apostles. Evan, I want to ask you, uh, too, about you had a kind of social justice orientation, both you and Shannon. And, and I want to ask you, what, as some of the results of Jim's work, where do you see um, signs of hope? And what kind of, what kind of results are, are you hoping to see? Or what kind of changes would you like to see? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think what Jim just mentioned about the Pope's letter was one of the most interesting things for me. So I started my career as a social justice lawyer, right? I was a nonprofit attorney. And I was always, um, not to compare Pope Francis to Justice Ginsburg, but she called the Constitution a, a living document, which I think is so interesting. And it's like the lawyer in me, it's just like, oh, he's calling the church a living church. It's like, in, in a way, there are some parallels in, in, in terms of traditionalists who interpret the Constitution and interpret the Bible, like church militant type crowd. So I thought that was really interesting and actually made me feel hopeful when he said that. It's so funny. I came into this so cynical. It's like if I had to write a book about my experience making this movie, I'd probably call it like a priest and an atheist walk into a church <laughs> or something like that. And so you experienced your own kind of conversion making the film. Can, can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I don't know if it was a spiritual conversion necessarily, but it made me a lot less cynical, right? I just, I used to be one of these gotcha verses type people where I'd say, well, look at the Bible, look at, and look what this phrase and look at this, you know, look at all these things it says. And then when making this film, I'm realizing, oh, that's what people I strongly disagree with do. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm using their tactic. And it just, it made me think a lot. I think I just matured a lot and uh, grew a lot and look, that's why I love making art and making documentary films. It's all about learning and growing. And yeah, I think it made me feel a lot more hopeful in ways for an institution that I, I thought and still oftentimes think is, is so far behind where I hope it would be, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, people say, well, it's in the Bible that homosexuality is an abomination. I said, well, it is in the Bible, right? And so, so are a lot of other things. Like, should we stone people who blaspheme? I always ask people that. Should we stone people who blaspheme? No, of course not. Why not? It's in the Bible. Well, we understand that differently now. Okay, so why don't you understand <laughs> homosexuality differently? Oh, well, that's different. Why is that different? Well, it's just different. So it's very selective. And there's, should we get a town together to burn people who sleep with certain people in their family? So 
I think it's really important to admit those verses, to look at them, but also to look at them in their historical context. Mm -hmm. You know, St. Paul says he's against usury too, charging interest. Do we do, banks do that. Does does everyone who works for a bank, should they be stoned? No, why not? Well, (laughs) we see it differently. Well, what about the Bible? So it just becomes, I think to remind Catholics, especially that we are not fundamentalists, we're not literalists, and we need to understand these things in their historical context. Well, why do you think, I want to ask both of you a question, why do you think homosexuality is such a neuralgic issue for people? It does come up in the film, uh, and we hear Brian Massengale give a very beautiful answer. Could you both talk about his answer and, and how you both understand this question? Why does it provoke such hatred and outrage, do you think? Yeah, I think it's fear. And like Jim mentioned earlier, sometimes self-hatred. I'm looking at these spam messages I'm getting now of people sending me Bible verses. And I'm and, oh, so and even I'm just, now still they're they're sending you stuff. Oh, just now because the film just came out. And now <laughs> they found me as the director. And Nick keeps sending me screen. We all keep getting the same screen, the same messages from different trolls. And I just yeah, I don't know what's there. I'm like, gosh, as I'd love to make a follow up documentary where I just go and drive to where all these people are and sit down and talk with them and really just try and like understand why they're so obsessed with this one issue, right? Like why they're going to go through the whole Bible. And find anything they can related to this, but then we'll ignore every other thing. So I, I think Jim has a pretty elegant way of the, describing this fear of the unknown. Yeah, well, one of my one of my favorite lines in the New Testament is uh, perfect love drives out fear, which is really beautiful. And I think perfect fear drives out love. And so a lot of it is interior. Evan's right that it's it is a kind of obsession. The other thing I found is that the people who are the most rageful, so you can disagree with what I'm saying, and I've had people write me thoughtful notes, and what about this, what about that? But oftentimes, people who are really furious are betraying something about themselves. I was at a talk, this is one of the few talks that Evan didn't come to, at, in Westport, Connecticut, at a very nice parish. 95% of the people were very welcoming and happy to see me. And a woman came up to me afterwards and started screaming. And I mean screaming. I will not do this over the microphone. And the next day I talked to a friend of mine who's a therapist and I said, uh, where is that coming from? Because it was, re- it was the first time I had experienced that in my life. People just, I mean, literally at a, in a public setting, screaming at me. And uh, I said, where's that come from? And she said, there's something going on inside of her, either her own conflicted feelings about her own sexuality, someone in her family, some encounter she had. So that's her. And you need to understand that's where it's coming from. And again, this is why so many of these, you know, real critics are quote unquote, ex gays, or you can see, as Evan said, that it, it's not just one thing that they're focused on. It is the only thing they're focused on. And oftentimes, I mean, Evan has told me this, I don't mind sharing this. He'll say, did you see this note from, and I'll say, yeah, Google him. And Evan will Google him or, or will have already Googled him and say, my gosh, this guy is all he, all he does is write about homosexuality. And it's like, yeah, okay. So it is, it's a very strange focus. It is fear and it is, um, and you know, it's look, it's homophobia. It's very easy to demonize people who are seen as other and to make yourself feel like you're in the in crowd and everybody else is in the out crowd. I'm just going to add one thing. Strangely, all of these spam messages and hateful comments I'm getting now have made me feel even more proud of making this film and, and the importance of it. Because oftentimes a filmmaker, you're filled with self-doubt and I'm like, oh gosh, it's 2022 and I'm releasing a film about treating LGBTQ people with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. Like, what, what am I doing? And then, I, and then the film comes out and you start <laughs> getting all these messages and I'm like, oh shit, like this mm. is extremely timely and extremely relevant and extremely important. And just because I live in Brooklyn, New York and, and I'm not exposed to this 
on a daily basis. Like, yeah, it, it's weirdly made me feel the, the weight and the importance of this film. All of these hateful messages we're receiving. Mm. Evan, do you have any future films in the works? And, and Jim, what are some of the things that you're looking most forward to as you continue your LGBTQ ministry? You can go first, Jen. So we've started this new website called Outreach. It's at outreach.faith, and it's a place for LGBTQ Catholics and those who minister to them. We had that a letter from the Pope. We have all sorts of wonderful articles and resources, news, a section called Gaudete, which raises up places, Catholic institutions that are providing a welcoming home for LGBT people. We have a conference coming up. And also, this is a big part of my life, too. I'm writing. I'm, I'm working on a book on Lazarus. Funny enough, I'm thinking of calling it after the quote, Lazarus come forth. But the Greek is more simply translated as Lazarus come out. But my publisher said, if you call it that, people are going to think it's another LGBT book. So Lazarus right. come forth. Gotcha. And Evan, what about you? Yeah, I mean, seem to be drawn to films of people challenging the status quo a little bit. And I mean, my first film was about a law that I hope to be reformed one day. This one is about, you know, a change I hope to see within a different institution. And then, yeah, I'm working on, I'm, I'm going back to my roots here and I'm working on a, uh, documentary about RICO, a racketeering law that was designed to bring down the mafia is mm. being used to silence and harass environmental activists. And mm. obviously climate change is on a lot of people's minds right now. So I think it's an, another important issue about people trying to make change. So Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing it when it comes yeah. out. Yeah. And thank you both so much for your generosity for, for speaking with us today. Thanks, Griffin. Yeah, thanks. It's great. Great being here. Building a Bridge will be available for streaming on June 21st on AMC Plus and elsewhere. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.